Hi, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo US brand manager. I'm here with Noah Hoffman, AKA the Hoff. Noah has 144 individual starts in World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic Games. He has finished in the top 30 41 times with three top 10 finishes. His best performance came in Ruka, Finland, where on the second day of a pursuit, he skied through the pack for the fastest time of the day in an overall placing of ninth. Noah won the 2012 U.S. National Championships in the 30K Classic Mass Start in Rumford, Maine. Noah, a two-time Olympian, retired at the end of the 2018 season. Since then, Noah has been attending Brown University, where he is currently a junior. He is doing anti-doping work for USADA, traveling to training camps and competitions to educate elite athletes on their rights and responsibilities under the VADA code. Furthermore, Noah is a member of the Global Athlete Startup Team, which is working to elevate the voice and power of athletes in international sport governance. Taking classes remotely this year, Noah is currently in Medford, Oregon. Thank you for being with me and taking the time and for taking the time to do this. You have had a very busy year. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about talking about a whole myriad of things with you. Um, not the least bit, the end part where we're going to talk about your service for USADA and Global Athlete, but let's focus on your athletic career and some of your thoughts on, on, um, on skiing and what's going on in the World Cup now first. Perfect. So, so my first question is, where did you grow up and how did you start ski racing? Yeah, so I grew up I grew up initially in Evergreen, Colorado, which is uh, up in the mountains outside of Denver, and was uh, skied alpine skied recreationally uh, with my family on weekends. Um, I don't have tons of memories of skiing. It was definitely not a big part of our lives. And then the summer before third grade for me, uh, we moved up to Aspen, uh, up further into the mountains as a family. My dad had gotten a job up there. And that was really what launched my ski career because uh, all of a sudden we were in a mountain town. I could ski from the door, alpine ski, cross-country ski. Uh, it was a very active town. All my friends uh, skied and all my friends, you know, mountain biked and, and everyone was just in the mountains all the time. And I uh, actually started cross-country running in Aspen first. And then, of course, all my friends on the cross-country running team also cross-country skied. There's just a huge overlap, as you can imagine, in a ski town. and so around fifth or sixth grade, I started cross-country skiing and did it just for fun at first and then found that I really enjoyed it and also like really kind of wanted, wanted to be fast and wanted to succeed and, and started really putting in, uh, putting in more hours training and, and saw immediate return on my investment. And that was really captivating for me. The, the harder I worked, the faster I went. And you don't see that kind of reward in every part of life. And I loved that reward. And so I just trained harder and harder and went faster and faster. That was really fun for me. Cool. From your time in um, growing up in Aspen, you, you skied for the Aspen Valley Ski Club. Did you have any mentors that helped you along your way? Oh, absolutely. So Simi was there. <laughs> um, Simi Hamilton, my, my teammate for years on the national team later on, uh, he, he was two grades older than me, two years ahead of me. Um, he was my sister's age. So he and my sister were good friends. And uh, he was, you know, one of the best juniors in the country. And so there were plenty of models. Aspen Valley Ski Club is one of the strongest clubs in the country. And especially at that time, we were producing so many fast skiers, skiers that were going to college to ski. Um, Brandon Cooper was Simi's age. And um, there, were, there were several skiers older than, older than Simi and Brandon who were also skiing fast and skiing in college and skiing at the elite level. And so there were just 
people everywhere. Um, Simi's sister, Jenny Hamilton, was just super fast. She also skied for Middlebury and um, Miley Wade. And I mean, the list just goes on and on. And so there were people all over skiing fast. And also the, uh, the most important for me was that John Callahan, uh, who had been in Park City uh, coaching the Park City team, moved back to Aspen and took the head coaching job or the Nordic program manager job at the Aspen Valley Ski Club uh, this summer uh, before my junior year of high school, sorry, my sophomore year of high school, which was right around the time that I was getting serious about the sport as well. And John ended up being my coach uh, through high school. And then I stayed with him and he coached me through my entire career. Um, he was an Olympian himself in 1992. And, and that timing of him coming back and kind of being uh, able to direct my motivation to help me like figure out how to not just train hard, but also train smart um, was extremely lucky. So I, I think John is the biggest asset that I got out of the ski club in Aspen, but the, the number of other skiers around and having Simi there to, to show what is possible was also super important. Cool. Yeah, that was my main question because you got to quite a high level yourself as a junior with some high placings at World Juniors. So I thought you had some, uh, some very, good support as a junior. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to highlight somebody. So John Callahan did a great job for you. Among he was, yeah, he was super important. And I, I was not, I was not that fast. So first year as a U16, I didn't qualify for the junior nationals. Yeah. Um, and then the next year I did, but it really wasn't until, yeah, just like senior year of high school and after high school that I kind of found my groove on the international side. So you've got a, a perspective on this similar to what I have. My, my, First year is what we now call U16. I didn't qualify for junior nationals. My second year, I was an alternate and then squeaked in because someone didn't go. By the time I got to what we now call U20, I was by far, my first year U20, I was by far the number one junior in the country. And those next two years, I, I won the junior trials for cross country by something like seven and a half percent, like massive. One race I won by three and a half minutes. You know, it was, yeah. it was massive, you know. Um, and I'm of the opinion that it's actually a blessing to be a late bloomer as a junior because you have to develop all of those little skills that make seconds, difference in seconds here and there, and you develop work ethic and you, you work in your technique, any little thing you, you develop. Whereas if you're a, an early bloomer and it comes easy to you, then you don't actually need to develop those things. And it's, it's kind of a handicap in my opinion. Yes, but there's plenty of counter examples. You look at Simi who was just, blowing people out of the water literally for as long as I can remember since he was in middle school. Um, I mean, he was the best junior in the country as like a 17 or 16 year old when they were, he was competing against kids two or three years older than him. And he's still one of the best skiers in the world and he's won world cups. And, and so, uh, you know, there are, there are counter examples, but I agree that for me, and it sounds like for you, it, it was a, it was an advantage to learn how to train hard in order to achieve my goals um, as opposed to just having it come easily. For every semi, and I think semi is one in a million, but for every semi, I would say that there are a thousand, and I don't want to say a person's name, but a person's name where they were junior national champion or state champion when they're U16, U17. And then when they became U20 age, they faded away and lost their love for the sport because their love was intertwined with results and glory that is all of a sudden became really hard to come by, you know? Yeah, I don't disagree. And, and you know, Simi would be the first to tell you that he had a lull. I mean, I mean he almost left the sport in college um, and then came back and found that love of the sport and the love of, of doing the things that he needed to do to be 
to live up to his potential. And so I, I think that even Sim, who had all that talent and has stuck with it, still has, you know, has had those downturns and it has not been all up and all great for him entire, his entire career. So, you know, and Mara Bjorgen is the same. She, you know, she was great when she was young and then had some really down years in the mid 2000s before coming back and just being unbelievably dominant at the end of her career. And so, uh, I think that you see that in a lot of athletes. I think what you're saying is exactly right. Hey, um, like I said, I found you quite successful as a junior um, at World Juniors and such. You had some really good endurance races. I think it, to your time, there had only been possibly only Chris Freeman perhaps was the, I don't know about Leif Zimmerman, the, the more successful than you were perhaps at World Juniors or maybe nobody. I don't, Chris for sure was, but um, anyway, you were quite successful. And for that reason, it was fairly easy for you, I think, it, the way it looked. It wasn't as complicated for you to make it onto the national team as it is for others where they have like a four or five struggle, you know, really struggle period, even if they eventually make it to the national team. Can you talk about that period between World Juniors, junior racing, and making it to the not only the U.S. team, but the World Cup? I mean, it's a hugely critical time, right? Because you're also deciding during that time whether you want to go to, to school and whether you want to ski NCAA and, and, you know, take advantage of, like, in my opportunity to, to get into some elite schools that I probably wouldn't have gotten into, um, Dartmouth being the, the you know, the, the top one, um, that I probably wouldn't have gotten into on my academics alone. I definitely wouldn't have on my academics alone. Um, and so I was deciding between, you know, going to an elite school and using essentially cashing, I viewed it as cashing in my skiing um, for this ticket to an elite school um, or pursuing my ski career. And as you say, I, I had some really timely results that really put me on track to be on the national team in, you know, in particular the 2008 World Junior Championships. Uh, no, yeah, 2008 World Junior Championships in Malls, Italy. Um, where I was, I was 12th in the, in the 10K and then in the 15K, I, uh, I broke, I fell and broke a ski and, and skied up through the field and still got top 25. And that was, that was um, a race that I think was, was like the race that the U.S. ski team looked at to name me to the national team at the end of that season. Um, before that, so I, coming out of high school, I made the difficult decision to uh, to defer going to Dartmouth, defer going to college in order to move to Sun Valley and to ski full time. But I, I, it was a one year decision. I said, I'm going to do this for one year and see how it goes. And I, it, it was, a, I deferred, I didn't, I didn't, you know, decline Dartmouth. I just deferred my admission for a year. And so had I not had that U.S. ski team opportunity and not had those timely results my first year out of high school, I'm, I very well may have gone to school and not had the elite career that I went on to have. And so absolutely, um, I feel fortunate at the timing of those results and the way that my, my results were ramping up at the kind of the right time. Because as you said, you have ups and downs in your career. For me, it came at the right time to kind of lock me into the national team career and postpone college until now, until my career is over. Um, but I, I absolutely, it's a struggle. And then you see the opposite, right? You see a lot of the people on the national team right now have gone to school who um, have, have degrees and, and then came back and were on the national team. Sophie did yeah. that and Ida did that. Um, and so it, it, works, it, it works both ways based on your results and based on what you're looking for out of your career. But for me, um, I, I had timely results that, that 
once I took one year off, that catapulted me onto the national team, and then it was then I was in. When you were in Sunday, were you, were you in that group that Chris Grover was coaching? Was that the year? No, I was there after Grove. Grover was already on the national team. Um, so I was there um, with Travis Jones was coaching. Um, and uh, we had a group of a bunch of us, but a bunch of people my age, Mally Noyes and Reed Pletcher, um, Taylor Sandali. We, we were all just out of high school and training full time. Um, so we had a really good group. Yeah, Reed got and also that year. Reed got super fast. And then we had a bunch of older skiers who were skiing extremely fast to guide us, like Mikey Sanat and Ben True. Yeah. Um, and so we were lucky, Colin Rogers, we were lucky to have a great group of athletes sure. um, that was just like the right mix for a young person like me. So tell me why you didn't stay in Sun Valley? Uh, too many coaches is the short answer. So I did stay there for one more year after making the national team. So I spent two years there. Uh, but I was still working with John Callahan. At that point, I'd started working with Zach Caldwell as well. And then all of a sudden, I had the national team coaches because I was on the national team. And I was trying to work with this club in Sun Valley. So I, had, I just had too many, too many coaches. Um, and so I'd, the way to – I just couldn't – I couldn't be part of the Sun Valley club without working with the Sun Valley coaches. And I couldn't continue to work with the Sun Valley coaches. So I decided to move down to Park City and take advantage of the U.S. ski team facilities instead and eliminate one group of coaches. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so I have a question then. While, while on the national team, you had some excellent races with three top 10s, 41 top 30 finishes in World, World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic Games. The race that jumps out at me the most is the skate pursuit from December 2013 in Ruka. Notably, this was also in the famously competitive first World Cup period. So this isn't, you know, a spring race in Canada or something like that where everyone almost basically everyone was there and everyone's tuned up because they're, they're looking to make teams. This was uh, the final day of a mini tour that started with a classic sprint and then a 10 K classic interval start race. And the next day in the 15 K freestyle pursuit race, starting from bib number 38 and a hundred, a minute and two seconds behind the leaders, you finished ninth place, only 12.2 seconds out of first. And your time of day was seven seconds faster than Maurice Monificat, who was the second fastest. That must've been thrilling to blow past so many absolute elite skiers. We're talking about world's best skiers, not pack fodder. Can you tell us about that day, please? Yeah, that was, that was one of the very special days of my career. It's, it's the type of day that you, that you dream of as an athlete and the type of day that you spend essentially the rest of your career trying to replicate, um, trying to get those feelings back. Um, it, was, it just felt easy. Um, Ruka is one of the hardest courses on the World Cup, um, especially that the, the course that they use for the final day of the mini tour is a two and a half K loop that's like a half pipe. You start in the stadium, you drop down to the bottom, you climb up a huge hill, you go around a U-turn at the top, you come down the huge hill, climb back up to the stadium, and you do the whole thing six times. So it's just like the entire time is up and down, which plays straight into my strengths. And it was one of those days where I just felt invincible. I felt like I was able to, I like couldn't make myself hurt. Um, it just felt, uh, I mean, it, it's like sometimes you have those days in training and you like, you like, man, I, I, if I feel like this when I'm racing, I'm going to be invincible. And then every once in a while, it comes along on a race day. And it, it's, it, I think that the athletes that are consistently the best in the world are the ones who are able to manufacture those feelings. And to be honest, I never was able to manufacture those feelings, but I did get lucky a couple of days during my career where those feelings coincided with race day. And uh, that was one of those days. And I, I, I mean, I, 
I was never, interestingly, I was never a student of the sport. And especially that year, I mean, I was only, uh, I was 24 years old. And I, I didn't really know the other athletes on the World Cup that well. I'd been on the World Cup for like a year or two at that point. But I, I, I was still like marveling at the idea of traveling around the world and like hanging out with the American team, of course, and then like the Canadian team. But I, I didn't really know the international athletes. And so I wasn't, when I was passing people, I wasn't like, oh, like there's so-and-so who's like one of the best in the world and there's so-and-so. I, I was just, I was just like seeing people ahead of me. Pursuit formats are really good for me because they just give me targets the whole time. Um, and I was just like picking people off one at a time. And all of a sudden I was in the lead pack. And I was like, wow, there's nobody else to pick off. Um, and I caught the lead pack right around, uh, right at the start of the last lap, so around two and a half K to go. Um, right as they were starting to accelerate, but I was still feeling good and I just held on and I, I couldn't match the acceleration of the pack. As you say, I, you know, I, they put 12 and a half seconds into me on the last hill going back up to the stadium, but I was right there in the lead pack and uh, it was, it was quite the experience. Uh, it, it was a little bit like, I think I was in shock a little bit because I, I had just felt so good. I hadn't done anything differently than I ever had before, but I just skied way faster than I ever had before. And um, and I, it did happen a couple other times during my career as well, but it, it, it was, I was never able to, to, like I said, to manufacture that feeling when, I, when it mattered most throughout my career. So I have a question about that. Um, just thinking about it now, listening to you, you, you did extremely well in a bunch of one, uh, pursuits, second day of the pursuit, really, really well. And some people would say, well, that's because the lead pack wasn't trying that hard or whatever, you know, but the reality is um, there were some, superstars who were second who weren't in the lead pack and had to work their way forward and i mean your time and results are legit in these races we're talking about you are somehow inspired and as you said it gives you a target to shoot for in these pursuit races however i've watched you race many times and what i've noticed is in the longer races that are mass start races you can match pretty much anyone's tempo until you get to the 5k to go or in a long long race like 50k or two and a half k and then they come these accelerations that are just unbelievable and and you know i mean they basically turn a 50k into a two or a 3k you know and they're going uh, two two minutes per k pace and just flying and that's hard for for you to match hard for anyone to match but um so when i look at that it seems to me that you probably ought to have been better at interval start races where you don't have these massive accelerations and it's more of a fitness and, and a pacing for the, for, the, for the duration of the race. But all of your results came, your best results, I believe pretty much all of them came in pursuits. Can you talk about that, the mentality difference or whatever it is that has inspired you? Yeah, I think the answer is pretty clear. And the answer is that I'm really good at following people. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would, even in that pursuit in Ruka, I would, you know, I would follow somebody uh, and then it would feel too slow for me and I'd pass them. But like, you know, like I said, I, I was 38 bibs down that day and I was only a minute and nine seconds behind the leaders. And so there was just a constant chain of people between me and the lead pack. And I was just going from one person to the other. I'd ski behind them for a second. Then I would quickly go and catch the next person and ski behind them for a second. And so I was, I was really good at following and I was not good at generating speed on my own. Um, and in, in fact, the best uh, interval start race I ever had was at the under 23 world championships in Turkey. 
um, where I, I finished second. And I went out really hard. Um, and I, within the first 2K, I caught my 32nd man. And my 32nd man happened to be Carl Tumjarv, who later became one of my best friends and also later ended up being a doper and getting caught in Austria in 2019 uh, at the World Championships. Um, and so I caught Carl and at, you know, within the first 2K, my 32nd man, and I, I skied behind him, like clipping his tails for the next 12K until 1K to go. And then Carl accelerated and put 15 seconds back into me and finished the race in sixth. Uh, but I was able to hold on to second after having Carl essentially lead me around the course for, for 12K. And so it was absolutely just a sense of following. I was always better at following people and I was not good at generating the speed on my own. Well, this is fascinating. You've had 144 individual starts in World Cup, World Championships, so not, not World University games, not U23s not real juniors, but, you know, absolute top of the sport. I would have to, and those are individual starts. You've had more with relays and, and such. I would have to say that, I would have to say that over half of those, well over half of those are individual start races. In other words, you know, interval start races. It happens all the time. Someone starts and then a super fast guy as on a second lap comes around and you catch a ride. And you ski with them for, like in Ruka, you could ski with them for five laps. Or, um, well, actually, that's the pursuit day. And the individual day would be two laps. But, um, or on your first lap, you catch someone on their second, you know, whatever. On your second lap, you catch someone on their first lap and you catch a ride. Did that ever happen to, to lead you to inspire result? Because it seems like uh, you had some very good results in individual start races, but your best races were all in pursuits in terms of you know, true performance? Did you not get lucky enough to catch a ride at any point or? I did at times, but I think it was when I happened to be at, when I was in a different point in my career. So for instance, my first top 30 result at the world championships, which was in Oslo 2011, when I was 22 years old or 21 years old. Um, it was, uh, it was a three lap, I believe it was the 15 K um, and Yak Mai, who was also a doper probably, uh, but um, came, came through having skied. He was, uh, he was one lap ahead of me in the race. Um, and I started like perfect timing to just get on his tails. And I followed him for 10K until he finished and then just held on for a top 30. And when I was 21 years old, the top 30 was a big result. So I think that uh, that that was, I, I did get those opportunities. They, you know, the timing doesn't always work out, as you say. Um, and I, the U23 medal is a great example of that. But, um, but yeah, I think that it was, it was like, maybe I didn't have that many where like the perfect ride coincided with me being on really good form. Yeah, cool. That's fascinating though. Um, if you look at the Italians historically, and an individual start races, oftentimes they haven't been as fast. But you get them in a relay and maybe a little bit of something in their veins, they can match whoever, you know, the Norwegian who's trying to drop them in front of them. They can match them. You know, they'll, they'll go suffer 100 deaths kind of a thing and this and that, but they'll match them. Um, and it's interesting that you, you seem to be in that category in terms of, you know, being able to match someone's rhythm and just suffer and just like focus on keeping that. Uh, that's an interesting um, quality to have, I guess. You know, so here's a, a question for most of your senior career, you've alluded to having too many coaches in the Sun Valley situation, reducing it. But 
you still had many more coaches than a traditional athlete over the years. And I'm curious, looking back at it now, how you feel about that. So John Callahan wrote your training plans. Zach was, I guess you'd call your technique coach. And then you worked with the national team coaches on a regular basis. So they kind of ran your workouts and, and videoed and helped you, you know, timing and whatnot. Um, clearly you were successful, but looking back, do you think this worked for you? Or would you have done anything differently in that respect? No, I do think it worked for me. I think that I was just a really independent athlete and, and was always going to do things my own way. Um, and I'm lucky that like the national team staff was willing to just play that supporting role. I mean, literally they would come out and, and video my workouts and basically were asked not to give any opinions or analysis of that video. They were asked just to upload it for Zach to look at. Uh, and so you know, that, that can be, uh, that's a pretty big ask of a coach. Um, you know, coaches are people who also have, have egos like we all do. And they, they want to, you know, they want to, they want to make me a better skier and they were seeing things in my technique that, that weren't working. And yet they had enough trust in the process and enough trust in me and, and Zach and my, my team that they were willing to just play that supporting role. And I'm really grateful that they, that they, you know, were willing to 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 take a step back and and just play that role. Um, I, you know, I, I think that the biggest question is like, would I have been better if I had spent more time training with other people? I spent probably ninety percent of my career training alone, and I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that like I was just pretty opposed to it. Uh, I felt like I was best when I was out there like banging my head against the wall and working hard on my own, and that I. Uh, that was what gave me my edge and gave me the confidence when it came to racing. And so I, I don't, you know, I was constantly reevaluating what I was doing throughout my career. I think I made really informed decisions. I think I had a, a great team and great support in John and Zach. Um, and I don't really second guess anything. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm proud of what I did and, and also, uh, you know, could there have been more maybe, but it's okay. It, it was good how it was. I'm not, I'm not second guessing you, don't get me wrong. And I also recognize absolutely you're one of the best distance skiers we've ever had. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, second guessing you. Well, um, you. I, I saw you at training camps banging heads with Eric Bjornsson quite often, um, banging heads in a positive manner, of course. And, and your styles are quite different and your strengths and weaknesses are quite different. And uh, I remember we talked about this at some point some years ago, but I thought that you would have benefited from being able to train with him, for example, on a more regular basis. You did train with him in training camps, but I'm, I know you, you thought about that. And I know you also train with Tad, for example, and Chris sometimes, and doing speed Tad is an excellent glider. And, um, and I, I imagine you picked up a lot just in terms of immediate feedback when you're doing quality training, not so much a distance, but quality training with someone. And they're, let's say, an, an excellent glider, and you're someone who's more of a, a scrambler, let's say, you know, and, you know, your strengths you pick up in certain sections and other sections you find that you're less efficient and you even might lose time while you're working harder than they are. And you see that immediately, but you might have done that enough to get that feedback that you needed. Yeah, I, I did try to, to, you know, to spend time with athletes and, and we did seek out specifically athletes who skied in the way that I wanted to ski and that we felt like, you know, there are some athletes like Simi, for instance, skis so big yeah. that I, I, I think it was, 
it was never going to work for me to try to imitate Sim. Um, but somebody like like Eric, um, in some extent, Tad, although Tad also skis very big. Um, but Chris, I think, is a good example. Were better gliders than me, but maybe didn't ski so far out of range that it just couldn't work for me. Um, and so we did try to deliberately, and definitely I was lucky to also have a great relationship with the Canadian athletes and Devin and Alex and and Babakov and, and getting to train with those guys. And um, I, I, gained, I learned a lot from them as well. But we sought out athletes and, and, and specifically, you know, in workouts, I would try, I would pick out, I would know ahead of time who that was going to be at the workout and who I wanted to follow and who I wanted to ski like. And so we, were, we did try to make good use, we being me and Zach in particular, and John as well, Bubba, you know, Zach was more focused on technique. Um, we, we did try to, try to maximize the, the benefit I got when I did have other athletes around. So thank you. Again, the reason I, I wanted to bring this up is, is not to second guess you, but to kind of shed light on the thought process and the analysis that you went through with your coaches and to kind of introduce it as, as a good thing to have done to other athletes and coaches who are listening to this because um, they're, it's so important, in my opinion, to take advantage, uh, uh, to, to take responsibility for your own development, like, like what you did your whole career. I think when you start to do that, instead of saying, well, so-and-so's my coach and I'll just do what they say, which is great, but you need to have ownership as well. And, 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 and analyze things and take responsibility for things and so on. And, and you did that absolutely. And I think that led to excellence on your part. One, uh, to, to your point, one of the, the greatest compliments I ever received during my career was from Billy DeMong. Um, and he said to me, he said, you know, it seems like, it seems like you, you do a good job of taking ownership over your, over your own success. Um, and I really appreciated that comment. And it kind of stuck with me and made me drive to continue to have ownership and, and to continue to really um, under, to own both my successes and my failures. That's exactly what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I really think that that breeds, it's super motivating. And I think it breeds success because at the end of the day, you know how you feel and you only have so many shots, you know, and uh, you don't want to be like, well, I guess so-and-so didn't, didn't decide properly for me or guide me properly. No, that's, that's not, you're the, you're the per, you're the athlete. And uh, I think you did a fantastic job with that personally. And, and that's why I wanted to highlight it because I think that there's a lot to learn from there. And I wanted to shed light on your thought process. So thank you. Super. Yeah. Um, in early December, 2014, just one year after your memorable pursuit race in Ruka where you killed it, um, in a 15K classic, you crashed in an icy corner and against a fence, which broke your fibula and tore some key ligaments in your leg. I, I, I read that, uh, tore, that you tore some key ligaments, and it brought the uh, question, are there ligaments in your legs that aren't key? <laughs> you know? Anyway, um, you eventually came back and skied that same winter in the U.S. relay team in the 2015 World Championships, almost three months later, which is a remarkable recovery. You also had chronic shoulder problems with two operations, I believe, in your left shoulder throughout your career. Can you talk with us about, uh, share with us what you learned coming back from severe injury? I'm sure you're really good at it. Well, the first is the, the medical team that I had access to as a member of the U.S. ski team is second to none. I, I am so 
privileged and lucky to have had access to the medical staff that I had access to. Um, and I think that it is one of the most important and maybe undersung uh, benefits of the national team. Um, and and the, one of the things that US Ski and Snowboard provides that people don't quite realize how valuable it is, is this international or at least national network of some of the best doctors in the country um, who will prioritize US ski and snowboard athletes um, at a moment's notice. So, you know, I, uh, I broke my leg on Sunday in Ruka. I flew back to the States on Monday, landed in Denver Monday night, um, was in Vail seeing Dr. Clanton, who's one of the best foot and ankle specialists in the country uh, at the Stedman Clinic on Tuesday and was operated on by Dr. Clanton on Thursday. And then had uh, Anna Geronimus Robinson, um, the, uh, one of our team physical therapists, who is Dr. Clanton's lead physical therapist for all of his patients, um, who would see me five times a week uh, in Vail for the next month or two. And then also was, before I even hurt myself, was scheduled to be our team physical therapist at the World Championships. And so I had continuity of care from one of the best foot and ankle specialists in the country, both at the MD level and the PT level. Um, it was, it could not have worked out better. And, you know, I, I attribute all of my success and the, and how quickly I was able to come back to having access to that team of, of medical staff. They were just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and then one addition is that um, Larry Gall, our team physician, uh, is also in Vail, and he would attend my appointments with me with Dr. Clanton. So I would be in these appointments with Dr. Clanton, and I'd have you know two MDs there and my physical therapist, all like my my whole medical personal medical team. I mean, it's just like the type of access that that most people in this country don't get. Yeah. Um, and I I feel so privileged and lucky to have had access to that. And uh, so that that's the day. That's the first thing, and that's not something that people can replicate. That's just my my privilege and luck and the support of the u.s ski team no let me ask some specific questions about that so you break your fibula and tear some ligaments key ligaments and the next day you're on a plane which sounds good but that's hellacious um were you able to elevate your leg through the entire plane right we're about take off and landing and and the, the the different legs you were flying on which meant you had to put your leg down for takeoff and landing and then getting from one place to another. It must have been super swollen and throbbing and bleeding inside and really uncomfortable. So I, I'm lucky that the medical team that first treated me in Finland was also very good. And they, um, they understood that I was going to be flying back to the States the next day. And so they, when they put on the cast, they put it on very loosely so that there was plenty of room for swelling. That was really important. In addition, I was given a shot of a blood thinner that I administered to myself in my subcutaneous fat uh, partway through my travel day um, to reduce the risk of clotting. Um, so the, I, we had a team doctor with us at the time in Finland. And then I was in this urgent care clinic in Ruka. Um, and so that they prepared me well for that flight. Um, I also, uh, I, I don't remember, I don't remember that many details about the flight, but 
um, I think that the hardest part, I had like two or three transfers. I mean, you know, going from a small airport in Northern Finland, I'm sure I went through Helsinki. I think I went through somewhere in, in Germany as well. And um, it was it was a really long travel day trying. <laughs> so I had actually, I do remember the only place I could fly out of was in Northern Sweden. And the, the wax technicians on that evening after the race were driving towards Norway. And so they dropped me off at some hotel in Northern Sweden. The next morning at like four o'clock in the morning, I had to get from my room to the airport. So I, I called a cab and I had to like push my duffel bag ahead of me as far as I could and then crutch up to it and then push my bag and crutch up to it. I do remember that being a bit of a challenge. Um, but in general, you know, the people are willing to help somebody on crutches and uh, I don't remember it being too, too awful. But I, I, I wanted to, so th that's, a, that's a tough day and you've been, Obviously, you're super resilient. You're super positive. Um, but most people in a situation like you're in where you're on the World Cup in a place where it's the World Cup opener, the year before you crushed it, you had all these dreams and goals and even expectations. And next thing you know, you're busted and you're in pain and your dreams are shattered for the, that winter. And you're alone pushing a bag uh, in the airport and then having to crutch after it. And then push your back, you know, you, all of a sudden you're isolated and helpless and in pain and no longer capable even. And you were able to, to return to Denver, obviously with a still positive mindset without feeling self-pity or, um, you know, hopelessness. That's remarkable in itself. Have you got any thoughts on the power of your mind, which obviously is very strong? Yeah, I think it, it kind of is one, it, it, you know, of a kind with the the way that I viewed the sport in general. And that was like, I wanted to be the best skier in the world. And I viewed it like a job. And, and I had a plan every day for what I had to do to make that happen. And, and it wasn't, you know, because I had this amazing team that was helping me develop that plan, it wasn't hard to adapt the plan to what I needed. And I was just going to execute the plan. And when the plan became get back to Denver, get surgery as soon as possible, start the recovery process. That was just the plan that I had to execute on a daily basis. And it didn't really matter that that was not the plan of like rest after Ruka and get ready for the next races in Norway. Um, the, it, the plan was simply, you know, whatever was written down on paper to make me the best skier in the world. And, and that, that was true whether I was recovering from injury or whether I was you know, on the World Cup preparing for the Olympics. So the plan, you keep referring to the plan and more or less having faith in the plan and just executing it because you have faith in it. When you broke your leg, there was no plan. You got a plan was formed between when you broke your leg and you, and, and you left for Denver. You obviously had a lot of faith in the USC team leadership and in their ability to care for you in a, in a, in a highly proficient manner. Probably, but I, I, I think what I'm actually referring to when I refer to the plan is, is, you know, probably within an hour or two of hurting myself, I was on the phone with John and Zach, and we made a new plan with, oh. with the understanding of what my resources were, were and what I was going to be able to do. 
Um, and, and, and it was like actually a physically like written down plan with my training. And it was, you know, all of a sudden delete the training plan for that week and put in like fly to Denver and, and go to Vail and, and see Dr. Clanton, like the, the actual physical plan changed and it was changing, you know, with my team of John and Zach. And it didn't really matter because I had that kind of support from them, um, as well as, you know, so like our team relied on the national team and relied on the medical staff. Um, but it was like this because I had this this team working me, with me to develop an actual physical plan. That's what I'm referring to. Okay, so this is a bit personal, but I'm getting to know how your brain works. So you're obviously highly intelligent. You are. Um, but it seems like you get comfort in being busy and in execution. And so the execution of that plan is what gave you comfort on your way home and in the next few months. It was, was basically you had something to do and, and you thought it was gonna be productive doing it. That's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. I, I think in some ways I'm that way where uh, I'll, I'll form a plan to a point and then at some point I'll pop up and kind of look around and then go back to my, and then execute, 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 and then pop up and make sure, you know, and it's an interesting where other people are very, they'll either put their head down and just go, but they'll forget to pop up and they might wake up and you know, Novus appears or something, and they'll be like, oh, I, I, you know, I went off. And other people are so worried about going off track, they never really execute, you know? And so that's an interesting thing to see how your brain works. I think we're similar in that respect. And, and I think it was really important to me that, I mean, I had a lot of ownership over the plan. Like, I, it, in general, when I was making my training plan, for instance, I would make it, I would design out the entire thing, and then I would call John, and we would talk through it, and we would make small changes. But the initial draft came from me. I wasn't relying on getting sent an initial draft and having, you know, at the very least equal ownership over it, if not like more control than my coaches and just relying on my coaches to make sure I was on the right track. I think that that kind of, um, that, that the reason I had faith in the plan was because it was my plan. <laughs> cool. So some, some traditional recovery from severe injury tips would be something like, Listen to your doctors. Be patient. Be patient with yourself. Um, would be having faith in knowing that you're going to become whole again, and just let the let let yourself heal. Perhaps those sleep a lot, eat healthy. You know those types of things. Do you have any anything that I didn't mention that because um, you're very successful at this that you'd like to add? Supplement my my comments with. Uh, maybe just that, uh, I mean, I was, I, I, the focus that I brought to training and, you know, being used to training five hours a day, all of a sudden was refocused on my physical therapy exercises and on icing. So I was religious about, you know, if, if, if Anna, my PT told me to, to ice five times a day, I was icing five times a day. If she told me to do my exercises three times a day, I would do my exercises three times a day. I mean, I was just you know, the best patient I could be because it was my job. Um, and so uh, I think that's the big thing is like, it, it turns out that like, there are physical, you know, maybe not immediately after surgery, but like the physical therapy and, and the physical things you can do to heal are really important. It, at least that was my experience. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you won the U.S. National Championship title in 2012 in the 30K Classic, Mass Start. And you also had some other fantastic World Cup finishes. Is there a race beside the pursuit race in Ruka 
that is especially memorable or meaningful to you? Yeah, there's two others. The, the three races that I view as being the best three races of my career are the Ruka, the Ruka Pursuit, uh, the world champ, world, U23 World Championship race that I mentioned, the silver medal in Turkey. Um, and the final one is one that you and I were emailing about, which is uh, the, the queen stage, as they call it, the, um, the longest stage of the 2014 Tour de Ski, just a couple of months before the, the Olympics in Sochi. Um, which was a point-to-point -point race from Cortina, Italy to Toblock, Italy. And um, I was, there had been, they, I think the schedule got changed that year. There had been like two or three sprints uh, before that race. And I, I was a terrible sprinter. And so I was so far down the overall standings. I was like 70th or 65th or something in the overall standings and like over three minutes behind the leaders. I, was, I didn't start very far ahead of the wave um, where they put like the, the skiers at the back. Um, and I, I had a day like I did in Ruka where I just couldn't hurt myself. And the course uh, is up and over this giant pass. So it's 17 kilometers uphill and then 17 kilometers downhill to, to Toblock. Um, and I was just flying up the hill. And, and for 17K, I just picked people off and picked people off. And I got to within 2K of the top of the hill. And all of a sudden, I saw this huge group of skiers up ahead of me. Um, it, it ended up containing like 30, 32nd place up to like 15th place in the tour. Um, this was like stage five of the Tour de Ski. So we're pretty far in. And all of a sudden, like 15th place in the Tour de Ski is in sight, starting from like 65th. Um, and I just, I put in an effort like I never have before. And as we were cresting the pass, I got onto the back of that group. And as you can imagine, for a 17K gradual downhill, it is extremely important to be on a group. Um, and I, I latched onto the back of that group and I just held on for dear life all the way down to the stadium um, and ended up finishing in the top 30, having moved up like 20, 35 places or something. Um, and you know, it's the tour to ski. So I finished, I, I knew I'd skied really fast. Um, but I didn't really, you know, I, I cooled down and didn't really have time to look at results because you got to get back to the hotel, get your duffel in the back, in the van. And, and we had to get over to Val de Fiemme for the next, for the last two stages. Um, and, uh, I found out in the car, somebody texted me or called me and said, you were second fastest time on day. And I was like, that's awesome. I was actually honestly disappointed because I had felt so good and I had, you know, Two months earlier, I had had the fastest time on day. And I, I thought, I was like, there's no way anybody skied faster than me today. I This was like the race of my life. This was better than Ruka. Everything came together. I had 17K to just ski like, an, like Superman. And then I got onto this group that pulled me down the hill at, at World Cup speed. Um, and I... I found out that I was second on day to Johannes Dwer, an Austrian skier who was a, a, an acquaintance of mine, a super nice guy. Um, but he had skied almost a minute faster than me. And I, I was like, how the hell did he do that? Um, well, uh, two months later at the Olympic Games in Sochi, uh, the day before the 50K, which was another one of my great races during my career, I was sitting at breakfast with Dwer talking to him. I was talking to him about his family. He had just had a little kid who he had named Noah. Uh, which was kind of wild. Um, and so he was telling me about his little boy named Noah and his wife at home um, the day before the 50K in Sochi. And um, after that in Sochi, I went out for my trainings for my pre-race ski and went back to my room and was scrolling through my phone. 
and all of a sudden I see a headline, or maybe it was the next morning on race day, I wake up to a headline that says, Austrian Johannes Dwer test positive for EPO sent home from the Olympics. Uh, and my mind, my jaw just dropped. Um, and so eventually after all the dust settled, uh, his results from the season, he admitted to having used EPO since the previous June and his results from the season were nullified. Um, and that tour de ski stage, uh, I was awarded the fastest time on day uh, for the second time that season. Um, you know, the EPO, I suppose, explains how he skied a minute faster than me that day. And um, I, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was a really special day for me and um, was overshadowed a little bit by, by Johannes's doping. And um, uh, it's got, you know, I got complicated emotions about it. So you're a, this, this day is a prime example, although it's not as direct as someone who, let's say someone gets fourth in the, in a race and the three above won medals, you know, at Olympics or world championships and they were dopers. And, you know, it's not, it's not as direct as that, but almost on that particular day, had you, had Johannes Dürr not taken the fastest time of day, how would that have changed your life? Well, so, uh, the biggest example is that at the end of that season, I finished 31st on the distance World Cup list. Um, and the top 30 automatically qualified for the A team, for the USG team A team. And I, uh, I, I was not named the A team that year. I was back on the B team. Um, and the difference in, so that was for the 2014 15 season, for the following season, the difference in funding was at least $15,000. And I had to fundraise and, and come up with that money on my own because I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't qualify for the A-team uh, because Dwyer and other dopers were ahead of me on the list. If I, if I go back, so I was 31st on the list, didn't make the A-team. If I go back and look now at the 2013-14 distance World Cup list with the dopers having been removed, I'm now 27th on that list. So Dwyer was not the only one ahead of me. Uh, whose results have been nullified um, because of doping. So, so that's a practical example of how this doesn't just affect the people that get the glory from the medals, but it affects pretty much everyone in the field in a very practical, real-world sense. And I have, a, I have a strong sense of outrage, like you do, about doping and, and abuse of fair sport and so on. That said, I want to bring up another topic that... Uh, through my career, you know, I committed in the late 80s and then throughout the entire 90s and um, was quite sure that most of the field were doping at that time. That was kind of the, the worst time to be an athlete, an endurance athlete. Um, but they were good friends of mine. I had great friends that I was positive were dopers. And at the time, it was, it was easy for me to say, you know, I'm in a sense the unprofessional one here because I'm competing in these, in these races and I'm not doping. And for the European, Central European culture of the time, I was the unprofessional one. They weren't being the moral cowards or, or whatever, but I was the unprofessional one. In fact, I even had a conversation once with another American athlete. We were in the back of this van, it was a French team, and the French coach heard this other athlete wondering out loud if the French who took first and second in the men's race and first in the women's race that day at the World Cup, do you, did I think that they were doping? And the French coach heard that, stopped the van, turned around, the other French athletes were in the van too, and yelled 
threw out the entire van to us in the back and said, you idiots, what kind of idiot would show up at a World Cup not having had dope? That's the least professional, stupidest thing in the world. And this is the head coach of the national team. And we were all dumbfounded. I mean, I knew they were doping. My friend didn't. But the fact that he said it so openly blew my mind in front of all the other athletes, you know, just calling us idiots. And it clarified that, that, that we were the dummies at the time. Not everyone else was the criminals. But time has passed. And I think that it's become more and more of a moral issue. And in this day and age, I personally would have a hard time having a friend on the World Cup who I knew was doping. How, how have you been able to kind of uh, reconcile this? Well, as I mentioned, Carl Tumjard, who I, you know, uh, who, I, who, who dragged me to my silver medal at U23s and then uh, and became one of my best friends, um, was caught for doping in 2019. And so I've had this exact experience. And um, I, do view more, I do view doping as a moral issue. Um, absolutely. I, you know, sport is a game it's an arbitrary set of rules that we make to be able to compete against each other and those rules include not using performance enhancing drugs and there's no difference between cutting the course uh and doping they're they're both violations of the rules and they're not living in the spirit of the game and uh and the game doesn't exist without rules because it's just an arbitrary set of rules that make up the game um and so uh I have, you know, that being said, I have remained friends with Carl. Um, I don't know that I have forgiven him for his doping, but I don't know that I have to forgive him in order to be friends with him. Um, I am uh, I'm disappointed in the decisions that he made. I'm, I'm angry at him um, for the athletes that he defrauded. Um, I'm angry at him for, you know, or, or saddened, I think is a better word, that he did, doesn't have, that he made decisions that I view are immoral. Um, but, uh, but he's still, he's still a good person. He's the same person that I became friends with. Um, and, and the decisions that he made are just that, they're, they're decisions that he made. Um, and I can, I can, enjoy spending time with him and, and value his friendship, um, even when uh, I know that he's made some really bad decisions. Um, it's a complicated issue and I, I think I want to do, you know, I, I'm, I'm working with Global Athlete and, and with USADA to do everything I can to, to clean up sport and to get sport to a point where it can live up to its potential. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I can still, I can still be friends with Carl and it's, it's complicated, um, but I'm grateful for his friendship um, and I'm working to make sure that athletes who, uh, athletes who dope or like him are brought to justice and that they aren't, you know, aren't welcome in sport. And he's, he's, you know, he's been caught and he's not welcome in sport anymore. And that's, I think, right. I like the words that you used, you said that he defrauded the event or other, other, or other athletes and, I mean, that's truly what it is. In, in Europe, they have a word, a term, they call it fraudulating a sporting event. And that's exactly what it is. You know, it's, it's, it's the same exact thing as taking a shortcut and you're stealing from the validity of the sports event, but even more specifically, 
you're stealing from the other athletes such as yourself in that event. You're, you're taking bread out of their pocket, you know, you're, you're actually stealing from them. And uh, I think in many circles, international endurance sport, the Americans and the Canadians for years and possibly one or two of the uh, Scandinavian countries were the only ones with this perspective. And I think that that, that has shifted and shifted, um, but not a ton. I mean, Becky Scott's recent um, unpleasant experiences in the IOC were more or less she's being laughed at for, for trying to clean up sport. Um, that's really unpleasant. And it's, a, it's an ugly wake up call. So I'm really grateful for the great work initiatives that you're doing outside of studying and, and helping uh, USADA. We can talk about that in a bit, but I just want, this is a good time to bring that up and also the moral versus professional issue. I wanted to ask you about, about the national team because when you were on the national team, the US national team became famous for its culture and its unity. Um, you spent most of the time between 2010 and 2018 with the national team year round pretty much at training camps in your own training group, traveling, racing in Europe, et cetera. Our team was famously close, especially during that time. Can you please comment on the team dynamics and the spirit of US ski team during that period? And also what practices did the team have that seemed to enhance the closeness and also ward off potential issues with team chemistry and harmony? Well, I think it's important to note that that the women's team was much better at this than the men's team was. Um, the women's team, uh, they, they were a model of how to achieve success together. And I, that's a huge testament in particular to Keegan and her leadership on the team, because she was, she was the best athlete in the world. She was the best sprinter in the world for, you know, for, she won the overall world cup sprint or the, the sprint title on the world cup for three years in a row leading up to the 2014 Olympics. And she was, she was dominant. Um, and athletes that are dominant internationally like that don't have to lift their teammates up with them. Um, and Keegan chose to do so. And she brought along this group of women who were, uh, you know, who, who led, you know, who came together and, and really it was a team effort that led to the 2018 gold medal in the team sprint. It was the group that lifted Jesse up. It was the group that lifted Sadie up and, and, you know, Sophie up and Rosie up. And, um, and now we've got, you know, younger athletes, Haley Swerble and Hannah Halverson and, and the list goes on and on. And, um, and this team is showing the power of team. And on the men's side, we were just trying to hold on. Um, it, it really early in my career, we were not cohesive. Um, I am lucky that near the end of my career, we kind of found our swing a little bit more. You know that you mentioned that Eric Bjornson and I trained together a lot. It it took time for Eric and I to get to a point where we were, where we were respected each other and where we were, um, were, were were fighting for each other. Um, and we got there eventually, but it was a it was it was challenging on the men's side often and we were lucky to have the women as models because i think without the women as models we would have just let the whole thing fall apart we would have never seen the value in team um, and we would have just been a bunch of individuals fighting individually and fighting amongst each ourselves but we had this women's model that that showed like oh if, if you work together you you can be you can all be some of the best skiers in the world um, and I'm grateful 
for the women. Um, I, I haven't mentioned Liz yet, but Liz was really the backbone of the team as well. Um, and and Liz and Keegan and and the group that was closer to my age, Ida and Sadie and Sophie, um, and then Jesse a couple years younger. I mean, they were they they are incredible. Rosie was on and off the team, and now is one of the best skiers in the world, which is so wonderful to see. Um, so I, I feel lucky for the women on the team who showed me what is possible when when you work together. So. You, you mentioned Liz at the end there being the backbone. It seemed to me she, although she didn't necessarily create this with the way Keegan did and, and you know, really instilled it. Um, I don't know if Liz has ever been in a group that hasn't been cohesive because Liz is such a unifying, happy, loving, just, she's a special person, absolutely. Yeah, I, know, I know you and Liz have been great friends for a long time. So I have a question that is a little taboo perhaps. Um, but I think I can ask you because we're going to, we have, I think is an understanding. So we'll keep it. It seemed to me pre Keekin, pre this, pre 2010, it seemed to me the culture of the US ski team, especially when traveling in Europe and such, was male dominated and male energy. From what you know of the past, does that sound right? And yes, although so I, I was named with the team in 2008 and it was it was a year when they brought on a whole bunch of there were a whole bunch of so after like the cent the middle of the 2000s Keegan was like the only athlete on the national team right. and the only athlete traveling in Europe. And then they brought on this huge group of development athletes that included me, um, but it included a bunch of women like Morgan Smith and Taz Mannix and Lindsay Weir and Lindsay Dillon and um, and uh, yeah, Morgan Aratola, um, the list was really long. And so they did bring on a bunch more women um, to write. And I came in with that wave. Um, so, so let me be more specific. I would say Lillehammer, Nagano, Torino, uh, uh, like, like um, the 15 years previous, not just the one year. It seems to me it was more of a male energy atmosphere. Not that the males did fantastic, but it just seemed like it was more of, of their club or their world. <clears throat> Post-2010, it seems like it flipped. And I, I, again, you understand where I'm coming from. I'm not saying anything good or bad. I'm posing a question about, I'm wondering. And it seemed to be much more of a, like the women's team, which was very successful and successful with this atmosphere that they created. My question is, do you think the men could have that same atmosphere with that same energy and be as successful as the women? Do you think it works for the men, like a, like a Chris Freeman or a Torin Coos and a bunch of guys on the way to the start with something on, and they're like stealing themselves for some pain, and you know what I mean? As compared to the women kind of bouncing around all together. You know, there's a different energy there, and I'm curious if one kind of was at the expense of the other, Originally, for sure, the male energy and kind of atmosphere definitely was at the expense of the women, in my opinion, definitely, no question about it. And my question is, did that have, when the pendulum swung, do you have any kind of inkling that it was a negative on the other end of the spectrum for the men? It's a good question. I, I don't know the answer. Um, I think that, you know, resources are scarce and, and there was a long time in the early 
2010s where we didn't even have a men's coach, um, a men's specific coach. We, you know, the, the, the women, we had an overall coach in Chris Grover and then the women had, had Matt Wickham as their head coach. And then Jason Cork was just a world cup coach, but he was working primarily with Jesse um, and Brian Fish was doing development and we didn't have a men's team coach. So, I mean, there's just like the, the resource allocation, right? The resources are getting allocated where the success is. And that's part of it. Whether you, you did ask partly in there, whether the energy that the women bring can work for a men's team. Right. And I think that there are clear examples of, of that working. And the, the primary one is being the Canadian team. Um, you look at the energy that, that, Devin and Alex and Lenny and Babakov um, had and the way that, you know, Devin went and was second on the overall World Cup one year and the next year Alex was winning world championships and I mean they, they were, they were feeding off of each other and making each other faster in the same way that our women were and they had the same type of carefree energy and attitude about it and so um, I, I think that there's definitely examples of that. And, and, you know, you, there are, there are teams, of course, internationally that have both very successful men and women, the Norwegians are a prime example. Um, but that those, interestingly, those groups tend to operate a little more separately than ours does. Ours operates as a full team. And so whether you can have, and, you know, they, they, they will have men specific camps and women specific camps. So whether you will have, uh, a whether you can have both groups be successfully with the same energy i don't i don't know i don't know the answer to that um but there's uh I, you know maybe with enough resources to really fully support both groups you could and, and hopefully no one including yourself they don't get me wrong i'm not making a point at all and i'm asking i feel safe asking you this because i know you were extremely close to liz for example many of the women on the team and so um, I'm just throwing a question out there and I figured if anyone I know, you're probably the most qualified to answer it. So that's where I'm coming from. Let me also yeah, say something else about team chemistry. My wife was very successful. She's got an um, Olympic gold, individual Olympic gold medal and three silvers. And the team that she was on at that time was the, the unified German biathlon team. And they had at least four skiers that were world best um, tons of medals and such at the time and they were friends kind of but for the most part what drove them was a will to beat the other in their training they would train so hard because they had to put one up you know one up one upmanship kind of and and just like this steely head games and um if it, there was a world cup race they didn't almost didn't care who win they would care who was the top German. Not like the Americans where, you know, you're in 30th or something, it's like, hey, top American. No, they could be second. And if a German beat them, was first, they'd be like, damn, I, you know, totally unsatisfying. It was, it was really a horrible, even toxic environment. But it brought out the, the hyper competitiveness in all of them. And they were so motivated and so competitive it they were all they all became the world's best and it's kind of the opposite in many respects of a utopian uh, culture that's been created in the women's team because they all couldn't stand each other because they wanted to beat each other so much although they were still you know cordial whereas the american women they're kind of like some other successful teams where hey we all rise together and we all help each other and we're all better together you know there are many, there are more than one ways to get there, but I love the solution that we have, obviously, because 
it's loving and, and positive and, you know, in my mind, it's kind of the American way, you know, like we're all one and for all and all that kind of stuff, three musketeers, you know, that kind of a thing. So, but it's interesting to consider the uh, alternatives. Yeah, and I think there are lots of examples where inter-team competition does yield really successful athletes. But as you say, I think that athletes are more than just their results and teams are more than just their results. And the, the, the healthier teams, the teams that are like better role models for society, the teams that are, yeah. that are like doing good um, for their sports are the ones where they all support each other. Great point. A team is not just its results. Absolutely. That's a great point. So I want to shift gears and um, just tip, dip our toe into something, a completely different question, but it's interesting. Um, so first off, you have 144 starts in World Championship, World Cup, World Championship, Olympics, meaning you're very, very experienced, obviously, and successful. I want to ask a question, but then I'm going to uh, kind of dive in. And, but what specifically do you think is lacking in the U.S. men to be even more competitive in distance racing? That's a great question. I, I think that, first of all, I'm very excited about some of the young athletes that are coming up. You know, athletes like Gus Schumacher, who I think can be best in the world, and it's really exciting to see um, and can kind of take U.S. men's distance skiing to a new level. Um, you know, during... May I please interject? David Norris has had some fantastic results recently. I mean, fantastic. Scott Patterson said, I'm not cutting on men's distance one bit, but I'm saying traditionally we've been better in sprint traditionally than in distance. You know, if you look at the top 30 results from the past 30 years. Um, and so that's why I'm, that's where I'm coming from. I'm not cutting anyone. We get some great results, but please carry on. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, part of it is probably resources, right? Like I mentioned, not having a men's coach for many years, I'm sure was not helpful for us. Um, I think that part of it is, um kind of a culture that was focused on like making cross-country skiing cool in this country and i that <laughs> there was a uh, one of the early u.s nationals i went to at soldier hollow um maybe 2003 or 2002 I mean, the whole the, the motto around it was like being cool and it was it was during that time when when Andy was one of the top athletes in the country, Andy Newell, I mean, he was for a long time, but he was like really focused on XC, XC ski films and he was like doing flips and, and he was really like driving this culture of being cool. And the reality is that like 15K individual starts and 50K mass starts are just not that cool. Uh, it, you know, they, they take like an amazing amount of work and, and drive and they're not sexy. Um, and that wasn't really the culture and the focus in this country. Um, and I think that's why we had great sprint results. We didn't have as good of distance results. Um, I think athletes like Chris Freeman, who were kind of bucking that trend and not worried about being cool, um, were doing so individually without as much support as they maybe needed. Um, but I, I, I just don't know. I mean, I did everything I could during my career to be as fast as I could on the distance side and other athletes are doing the same. And we, we at times got to a point where we were also working together and lifting each other up and it, it never made us best in the world. Um, and I think we can get there, but I, I haven't, you know, I'm not a coach. I'm not, I'm not administering the national team. And so I, uh, I hope that they have more answers than I do. Sure. So I did an interview with Keegan and Keegan basically said, 
Jim Galanis and his 10-year plan that we laid out was more or less everything in terms of her ability to get from being in the Olympics in 2002 to becoming the best in the world in the sprint in super competitive and distance racing. That 10-year plan. And she was talking about patience and, and even many years, I think it was eight years into her plan, she was last in a World Cup event and crushed. And then she had to look at this, these different um, spreadsheets and graphs that you'd make that would graph fist points and time out of first and, and all these different parameters so she could actually see her improvement because it came slowly. And, but she could see it and then she believed in it and had more patience and believed in herself, you know? Um, I combined that information with David Norris's answer, which was he commented that because it takes so much longer for a distance athlete or an athlete to achieve high level and distance due to a need to absorb the training over more years, as compared to a sprinter, he thinks that many quit before they achieve their potential. It's kind of a gotcha moment. You're 31 now, correct? Correct. Three years ago, you were 28. Normally, you're at or just before your peak of your career as a distance athlete and still absorbing that training. You did your first non-junior international events about when you were two, about 2010. Keegan's 10-year plan took her from the Olympics to, I'm wondering if you have thought, obviously you're not a machine, you're a human being with other goals besides sport. I'm not um, saying you're a, you're a robot, you know, um, but in terms of pure sport and distance racing, do you think if you had the ability to train for a few more years and absorb that much more training, those, let's say, aberration uh, races where you were best in the world on that day would become more common as it was in Keegan's case. And you would have perhaps been a regular in the red group and, and fighting for top tens regularly. Uh, I, I don't um, because I think that there was a couple other structural things going on with me. Um, the biggest was that I was fighting the entire last three or four years of my career um, kind of, fighting some issues with my posture that were really, uh, really hampering my technique. Um, I developed a huge kind of S curve in my back where my hips were tilted really far forward and my shoulders were super rounded and it made this big, you know, cup in my lower back and then bulge in my upper back. And it, it was, especially by classic technique, it was really hard. Um, it was really impacting the way that I was skiing and I wasn't skiing as efficiently. Um, and we worked really hard to try to combat it. I, I basically took three or four months off of training and just did physical therapy um, in 2016. Um, and it was, it, it, it worked to an extent, but it didn't work as well as I hoped. And, um, and then I tried to kind of combat it with just pure fitness and, and training. And I tried to up my training by 200 hours a year and, um, and that kind of backfired. I ended up sick and, and injured all winter, mostly sick. I got influenza and pneumonia and it was horrible. That was, that was the year when you were eliminating everything but training. No yeah. travel, no, no, um, you did less blog work. You did less hobbies and you were exactly. focused on recovery and no, no compromise kind of a thing. 
Yeah, I trained 800 hours before leaving for Europe that year. Oh, wow. Um, I was training three times a day. I was getting up and doing strength before breakfast and then doing two regular workouts um, also on those days. Um, and it, it just buried me, uh, which was not surprising. And then I, you know, I, I'd almost called it after that year, gave it one more year to see if I would absorb some of that training and, and qualified for another Olympics. I'm so glad I went to another Olympics, but I, I just, uh, there were too many kind of structural forces fighting against me that I don't believe that like more time, more time in the sport, more time banging my head against the wall would have yielded the type of success that I was hoping for because of those big structural things. That's, that's obviously a great answer. I'm, I'm curious if you have tips then, what, I'm, I'm 53, so I've been uh, skiing for a long time. And I do still like do ski erg and, and a lot of workouts and, you know, just as a 53 year old. Um, and I find that as you get older, those issues that you're describing get worse. And you have to take, do you have do remedial activities to balance it out? Otherwise, you're going to be a cripple, kind of. You know, cross-country skiing is very healthy, but it tightens your, your hip flexors, especially someone like me, because I work out and then I sit behind a desk for eight hours plus. And, or, or I, I do a race or a workout and then I jump in a car and do a road trip forever. And, and that exacerbates everything because the two areas that I find are problematic is the hip flexors getting short and that causes the lower back issues you mentioned um, because it pulls, pulls on it. And then your pecs, your pecs becoming, your pectoral muscles becoming very shortened which pulls your shoulders forward and makes it so the mechanics of your upper and lower and middle back in that case all work improperly. So I do a lot of um, hip flexor stretches and then I do a lot of time on a foam roller going along my spine, stretching with my hands behind my back, with my hands here, all different angles, stretch my, my shoulders. And if I don't, uh, my pecs, if I don't do that, I have massive neck problems. I have massive back problems, lower, you know, it just blows up. As the older you get, the more you sit and try to be active. Were you doing these types of remedial training and how would you, what importance would you place on it for an athlete on your past trajectory and career? Yeah, I, I was not doing it before I identified these problems. And at that point it was probably too late. Um, so I, I think that those types of, I think that, yeah, my strength plan also didn't uh, didn't work hard enough to counter some of the the structural issues that come from skiing, um, and that my physical therapy plan and and stretching were not a big enough part of my daily routine um, as a young athlete before I was twenty four years old. Um, and I think that that would have that would have absolutely helped, um, but I you know, and, I, and it was just too late to undo some of that work um, by the end of my career. If you do you agree with this assessment, I kind of look at the body. If you look at a tent, like an old style tent where you have the pole and then you have the lines going from both sides of the pole going down to the ground that you fix to the ground. And if you're a cross country skier, we've had like Per Ellison, Thomas Osgard, um, Anders Sudergren, uh, many high level, very famous, super strong athletes have back problems and have to bow out at large floor in the United States over the years, many. And, and I think it's the cross country skiing that's doing it to them. And the way I look at it, you have a pole, uh, tent pole, and then the line that goes from the top down to both sides so it's fixed. When we're cross country skiing and we're working the pecs so hard in the, in the front of the body, 
we're shortening the fascia, we're shortening those muscles. It's kind of like having a tent pole and tightening just one of the ropes to the ground tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And eventually the pole starts to lean over and the other one gets weak and frayed and, and so on. And you need to strengthen the other pole and shorten it to bring it back to the middle. And you need to stretch and loosen that front pole that you keep tightening. And if you don't do that, there's a, there's a, you're on a one-way street to difficulty. And once that pole gets really bent over and one side super tight, it's really difficult to reverse. Really difficult. Yeah, I like that analogy. Would you agree with that assessment and the importance of if you want longevity, you need to pay attention to that body maintenance early on? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I'm sorry I had to deal with that. But no, no regrets. You're doing some great things now. And, um, and you weren't necessarily put on this earth to just be a cross-country ski racer. And, and, uh, and you had a fantastic career. So, you know. Yeah, I don't have any regrets either. So That's great. Um, so how's school going? Have you been able to apply your famous determination and also uh, ability to execute as well in your studies as you have been able to as an athlete? Yeah, I've been actually shocked at how much the skills I developed as an athlete have translated to school. Uh, when I first year at Brown, uh, I was taking intro to economics and I walked out of the first midterm exam and I couldn't believe how much it felt like I had just finished a ski race. It was like, you know, go into this exam, you're just focused on executing, focused on doing exactly what you've trained to do, nothing more, nothing less, uh, using, you know, using the full time, you, totally blocking out everything around you and then and then all of a sudden you hand in the test and it's like oh that that was just like a ski race um so it, you know and not just in testing but also in like in like creating a plan and executing a plan and and blocking time management and and making sure i get enough sleep and knowing the things that i need to do like sleeping and eating and exercising that that you know that make me a better person and and give me um you know the energy to be able to focus on my studies. So all of those things have, um, have yeah, helped me, helped me navigate the, the rigors of Brown. That's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. So for USADA, you go to events and training camps. You basically set up a, a tent or a booth, and then and you give also um, talks to athletes. You've had a lot of interactions with track and field athletes and other sports. Have you had an experience that surprised or especially impressed you that you'd like to relate? Um, I, I have been surprised, especially in the sports that see a lot of doping, of how knowledgeable uh, athletes are of, of anti-doping policy and how much they want to see change. Um, one of my uh, one of my gigs with USADA was to go to the California International Marathon, which happens in Sacramento. And, and in that one, I, I was giving a short presentation at the pre-race meeting, but I was also, my job was just to be in the athlete lounge all day to be able to answer questions people had about filing their whereabouts, about their um, therapeutic use exemptions, about their, uh, you know, how to look up what medications they can take and which ones they can't, about supplements, um, and, and just get to interact with athletes. And, and these athletes were knowledgeable. They had very specific questions. They wanted to know, you know, um, how they can help be, you know, part of the clean sport movement and, and 
push for change internationally and push for change in this country and and how to make sport cleaner and and you know of course distance running has been really hard hit by doping just like cross country skiing has um, and these athletes are engaged and and that was really exciting for me to see okay cool. i'm excited to talk with you about your work with global athlete um, you're obviously very knowledgeable in in the fight that uh, we're all grateful that you were involved in um, you mentioned that the mission of Global Athlete is to elevate athletes' voice in international sport. So it's not just doping, but in other ways. Or can you can you talk to that first, please? The mission. Yeah, Global athlete. Global Athlete is is much bigger than just anti-doping policy. Uh, we're we're focused on on centering athletes in global sport and sports administration, um, really on being. Uh, on holding the international sport governing bodies accountable, you know, namely the IOC and the IPC and WADA and then the international federations like FIS, like the IAAF, or which is now World Athletics, um, like, uh, you know, the International Swimming Federation, etc. Um, these organizations are supra-governmental, meaning they have, they're not accountable to any one government. Um, and if they're not accountable to athletes, they're not accountable to anybody. And that's why we haven't seen, a, you know, transparency, we haven't seen accountability, we haven't seen um, athletes and athlete interests and clean athlete interests being centered in these organizations. Um, and that's what we're, we're working to fix. Super. So I want to um, ask you specifically about the Rodchenkov Act and how significant this act passage of this act in the United States is for fair sport. And why do you think that WADA was trying to undermine the passage of this act? So can you push, first please describe it, explain what the impact is gonna be and then why WADA was trying to undermine it? Yeah, so the act uh, on December 4th was signed into law by President Trump um, after unanimously passing both houses of Congress. So a totally bipartisan bill had zero opposition because it passed on voice vote. So if there's any opposition at all, it's blocked. Um, and it, zero opposition from either House of Congress. Um, and it criminalizes international doping conspiracies. So it interesting or, or importantly does not criminalize athletes doping. That athletes doping um, is a sport offense and there are systems within international sport to hold athletes accountable. The, the biggest area where international sport regulation, regulating bodies have failed is to hold accountable state-sponsored or institutional-sponsored doping. Doping like the Russian doping at the 2014 Olympics, doping like the U.S. Postal Service doping, institutional doping, um, and that's what this law is aiming to combat. So it is holding accountable administrators, doctors, coaches, um, anybody who is facilitating widespread doping for athletes now has criminal liability in the U.S. Um, and for the first time, that gives federal law enforcement an avenue in which to join the clean sport fight and to investigate international doping. Um, and then the act does a couple of other things. One is it protects whistleblowers for the first time. So Dr. Grigory Rodchenkov, who the act is named after, who was the mastermind of Russian doping in from 2010 to 2014, and then fled the country after, after that system started to fall apart and, and exposed everything that had been going on there, um, is in hiding in this country, but uh, was not immediately eligible for U.S. witness protection because what he was reporting on was not a crime. 
um, clearly is in grave danger from the, from the Russian state, having been a traitor to the Russian state um, and exposed this doping. Um, and a lot of his witness protection had to be privately funded. Um, and so this, for the first time, makes him eligible and other whistleblowers eligible for witness protection. Um, finally, it does give athletes an avenue to seek restitution um, when they're defrauded by dopers, which is why I used that term earlier. Um, and so athletes can sue um, the perpetrators of doping fraud um, to try to make up some of the losses that they've experienced because of dopers. So it's three really big, important uh, outcomes from this law that is brand new and really uh, exciting for clean athletes. And why was Vada trying to undermine it? Uh, it, that's, that's a great question. Um, we've been asking that for three years or four years. Um, they claim that, so the law has extraterritorial jurisdiction um, because it, it aims to protect U.S. citizens across the world and U.S. corporations across the world. So any, uh, any sporting event that has U.S. sponsors um, and or is televised in the U.S. and paid to, you know, broadcasters in the U.S. are paying for the rights to televise it and or has at least three U.S. athletes competing in it, um, those sporting events come under the purview of this law. And so uh, it has very broad, you know, as you can imagine, that covers every Olympic Games, every Paralympic Games, every international competition the world over, essentially. Um, and the and WADA was claiming that the extraterritorial jurisdiction is undermining the harmony of global sport, of global anti-doping policy, um, and is uh, is going to make a patchwork, go back to the days before WADA, before the year 2000, where there was a patchwork system of anti-doping policies and the rules were different in any one place. What that fa argument fails to acknowledge is that the Rodchenkov Act specifically says that the rules that they're holding people accountable for breaking are set by, the, by WADA. The, the, the act specifically names the WADA code as being the global standard for international sport doping rules. Um, and it also, our, WADA's argument fails to acknowledge the failures that WADA has experienced in holding these state-sponsored and institutional-sponsored doping accountable. WADA is really quite good um, or at least, you know, the anti-doping system as a whole with national anti-doping organizations doing a, a relatively good job of catching individual one-off dopers, dopers who are doping on their own accord, people like Carl, um, who are getting caught for doping as an individual. Um, but the system is utterly failing to hold accountable these international state-sponsored doping schemes, you know, where urine is being swapped in the laboratory and, and the, the limbs data, that the data is being manipulated before being handed over to investigators. This is, you know, WADA is no match for the Russian state. Um, and the only match for the Russian state or for these big state actors are other governments and governments like the U.S. government. Um, we need them in the fight for clean sport because the the current system has just failed to stem these international, huge orchestrated doping conspiracies that are fun well funded and coming from the very top of power um, in these countries. And so that's why this act was so necessary. But, um, you know, in some ways, I think that that's the type of accountability that the sport movement doesn't want um, because 
you know, the sport movement and the IOC, you know, they fund half of WADA and they, they essentially control WADA. Um, and they don't necessarily want Russia to be held accountable because Russia is a huge market for the Olympic Games. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that the lack of motivation to really clean up sport is why we haven't seen sport cleaned up. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's why we are where we are. And so that's why the Rodchenko Act is necessary, but that's also probably why WADA has pushed back against it. So let's look at, um, let me start up the thing. Let's look at what's not the most recent doping scandal. In my mind, the most recent doping scandal is the last cross, in, in cross country skiing, is the last cross country ski event that was held. In my mind, that's the last doping scandal. It just wasn't uh, public, public knowledge, you know, that uh, certain countries are, are leaning heavily and depending heavily on, on doping and it's enhancing the results. And that's, you know, that was a fraudulent sport event, sporting event this last weekend, as far as I'm concerned. But let's go to Seyfeld World Championships where that German doctor was caught administering to Austrian and Estonian athletes. Would that, so this isn't uh, state sponsored and it's not team sponsored. Would this have fallen under this Rodchenkov Act or not? The doctor and any other facilitators of the doping could be held liable um, because there were Americans competing in the event. Uh, um, right. yeah. And so there's US jurisdiction. And to be clear, the only reason that that uh, came to light, that those athletes were caught, was because government was involved. The Austria doping is illegal in Austria and Germany, and the only reason that those athletes were caught was not because of the current anti-doping structure, not because of WADA, but because it was a criminal act, and those law enforcement officers were the ones who uncovered it. And the difference between those laws is they're not extraterritorial. That event happened to be taking place in Austria, where the event is uh, where, where doping is a crime. And so Austrian law enforcement was working in conjunction with German law enforcement to hold those athletes and the doctor accountable. Um, but when the events are held in Russia, Austrian law and German law aren't doing any good to, to make sure that the Sochi 2014 Olympics are not corrupt. Um, and so that's why this law needed extraterritorial jurisdiction um, because US athletes are being defrauded in Russia uh, and being defrauded in other countries that are that have you know institutional doping or that are just holding events and not holding any athletes accountable, um, and so yes, so to answer your question, uh, yes, the doctor and the administrators would have would be liable. I don't know that U.S. law enforcement is going to focus on a on a case like that where there's just individual athletes doping, they're, they're gonna count on the anti-doping system to, to take care of that. If that event were happening in the US, the US law enforcement probably more interested in it, but it's the really big, you know, the thousand athlete scandal from Sochi 2014. Those are the ones that we're gonna start with in the Rodchenko comeback. But, but even still, if someone if it was a party that paid for TV rights or an athlete who lost funding because of this, they could sue the the perpetrators for damages even even the tv company like you know it doesn't necessarily have to be the u.s government yes exactly I, you know. that door, so that's interesting you made a point when you when you brought that up and you were saying that the point is this was a police act this wasn't a vada or the fist or anyone caught him this was the austrian police 
in, co in coordination with the German police. Um, and that's an important point. If you look at history, like the Festina affair in cycling is very famous. There was no, there were no positive tests. There was no nothing. It was a, the dude was, Willie Volt was caught on the border entering, entering the country with a whole ton of drugs. Same with the Operation Puerto, probably the biggest, got the most number of names in cycling ever. Um, Manuel Fuentes in uh, Madrid, they, there was a police act and they were spying on him and no one tested positive. And we're talking about tons and tons of people like Tyrell Hamilton and Jan Ulrich and so on. And in, in skiing, it's no different. In biathlon, it's been no different. Um, largely, except for the Finns in 2001, for example, World Championships, and that little bit, of, that little blip in 2002, Bengt Saltine was doing a good job basically testing. Um, the Swedish uh, doping uh, expert who recently died. Um, outside of that, this and Vada have been largely ineffective in my mind, especially getting the, the real perpetrators, the systematic doping and so on. Um, and yeah, so there, I, there, I, I welcome this. I think it's really important. Yeah, no, I, there are countless examples of why law enforcement is better at catching doping perpetrators than FIS is, or WADA is, or the IOC is, or USADA is. Um, the reality is that uh, you need the investigative power of law enforcement, and we need that in sport, and that's why this is so important, as you say. So, so that's a segue to a point that I wanted to make and discuss with you. I think that one major obstacle to fair sport are the governing bodies themselves, such as the FIS, for example, who are tasked with marketing and selling that sport in its events. If there are positive doping tests, the integrity of the event loses its credibility, sponsors are lost, and the public loses interest. So someone who's running FIS or IBU or UCF, their interest is actually to avoid positive doping tests, it appears. Because of this, the international governing bodies commonly cover up any positive doping tests and they organize doping tests to be negative. For example, in the early 2000s, there was a urine test and a blood test for EPO. And if you tested positive in the urine test, they would administer a blood test. And, and then if you tested positive in the blood test, you, you took EPO and you were gonna be punished. The problem is, if you took the EPO at the time, it would stay in your urine for about two days. But the EPO didn't take effect to increase the, the blood cells and have those young blood cells in your blood until later than two days. So the way they organized it, it was guaranteed not to have two positives. And so if someone tested positive urine, they said, oh, the blood test was negative. If someone's blood test was positive because they had a whole bunch of baby blood cells in it and so on, and, and it was the hematocrit was too high, the EPO urine test would be negative. And this was their idea, you know, it, uh, it was marketing, pure marketing BS um, to, to build on that. However, positive doping tests are needed to enforce the anti-doping laws because people are doping. And, but they come at the possible, the possible cost of the popularity and credibility of the sport, ironically. This was the main reason why VADA and all the national iterations of VADA were created to come up with this so-called third-party independent um, objective in authority, which would reestablish re credibility of the elite sports and its events. But in the meantime, VADA has been gotten to, and as we just pointed out with the Rochenko Act, uh, they're no longer objective and they don't have clean sport as their prime objective. They have other things in their agenda. But it seems to me that police action is very effective. Secondly, 
when it seems to that me that when it seems that there is a strong financial disincentive, such as the Ruchenko Act could introduce, for example, to cheat, that would be a disincentive for organizers and for teams and athletes. The system can work without too much repercussion for the health of the sport because the risks are so great. Germany, for example, has cleaned up their act finally as they realize collectively that the public, the German public will tune out if they have positive tests. And that's been demonstrated very clearly in cycling. The Tour de France isn't on TV anymore in Germany. All the sponsors are gone. Um, if it doesn't take too long to look back at German cross-country skiing, especially the men, and see how incredibly dominant they were. And now look at them, and they're not even competitive. They're, they're, they're maybe about at the level of the US ski team on a good day for them. But clearly, some big changes have been made. I'd love to hear your thoughts on disincentivizing financially doping, such as the Rochenko Act, but other things that could be done, as well as police actions, which obviously are in harmony with that. Yeah, the biggest and most important thing that we are pushing for so, so hard at Global Athlete is that WADA is not independent from the sporting movement. As you say, there are clear disincentives from actually cleaning up sport in the sporting movement and the sporting movement just absolutely controls WADA. They fund half of WADA, um, the sporting movement does, almost all from the IOC. The IOC controls these sporting organizations and then the sporting movement has half the board seats at WADA. The other half are for governments of the world and because governments of the world, as we know, are not unified on basically any issue, uh, the lack of unification on the opposite side means that the sporting movement has like complete control over the over the anti-doping movement. And that system has failed. It has failed to give the independence and power to WADA that it needs to actually carry out its mission. Um, and the answer is a more independent WADA. And one of the ways to achieve that is to give athletes who are actually focused on prioritizing the number one stakeholders in the sporting movement um, more power within that system. We would love to see a model where it was one third, where the funding um, continues to come from the government to the sporting movement. Um, but because of the clear need for independence, you give one third of power to the sporting movement, one third of power to governments, and one third of power to athletes. And therefore, athletes would have the ability to be a deciding vote, be it either in line with what the sporting movement wants or in line with what governments wants. Um, athletes would have real power at WADA. Um, but you, you just need independence. There should not be, um, right now, the uh, IOC Athlete Commission uh, has the ability to place athletes on the WADA Athlete Commission. Um, the IOC Athlete Commission, keep in mind, signs the uh, signs an oath of allegiance to the IOC. So these athletes are fully committed to the IOC agenda and they now have power over the IOC athlete or the WADA athlete committee. Um, that's just one example of the ways that the IOC controls the WADA boards from the executive board to the, uh, to the athlete committee, to the education committee, to, um, to the, you know, uh, investigations and intelligence committee. It's just, um, it's across the board. And it is why we don't see the WADA taking decisive action on Russia, why um, Russia perpetrates the biggest doping scandal in history. And then WADA finally gets gets access to the data from that doping. And, and it turns out that Russia has corrupted the data and manipulated the data. And we don't see any real consequences or real punishment coming from that 
um, it is because there is not the independence and power at WADA to be able to carry out their mission. Um, luckily, that we have we have really big big time support. There are 14 national anti-doping agencies and 14 independent athlete groups around the globe that have signed on to um, to the stance of of needing to revamp WADA and, and restructure WADA. Um, we also have the ONDCP, the U.S. Uh, National Office of Drug Control Policy, which is the oversight body of WADA funding coming from the U.S. government. The U.S. government is the biggest single uh, single funder of WADA um, from the government side. Um, it, several million dollars a year um, going to WADA funding. And they have, uh, at the, the US government has now threatened to pull funding from WADA if WADA does not restructure. Um, they're, they're joining athletes in this fight to, to fix the global anti-doping movement. And we need more countries and uh, to threaten to pull funding. Um, and we, we need, uh, we need a, a new structure for global anti-doping regulation. Thank you. I've got a few more questions specific regarding this topic still. First, a point, you mentioned that the IOC athletes reps sign on and pledge their allegiance to the IOC. I kinda, I'm a little jaded when it comes to that because you know before you do a World Cup race in cross-country skiing, there's something all the athletes do ritually. There's a glass board and they walk up to the glass board and they put their signature with a marker on that glass board what does that signature signify? Uh, it's supposed to originally it was a, it wasn't a part of the clean as snow campaign uh, to signify your your competing clean. Yeah, and so you know here we are the either athletes but also the, the fans of the sport and the officials everyone's seeing this travesty in my mind in all these uh, athletes many of whom are famously not clean walking up and signing this thing and then going to the start. And then, you know, it, it's kind of a joke. Even though I like the spirit of it, it seems like it's more presentation than actual substance. And I hope that the signing on and pledging your allegiance to, VOD, uh, to the IOC as an athlete's rep isn't the same thing. Because it brings to me the question, I, I, Becky Scott was recently ridiculed, uh, I guess it was about a year ago now, um, for, for trying to clean up clean sport um, in her position with the, I think it was the IOC at the time. And it brings the question, is there a critical mass necessary? Are there are the people for clean sport, do they outnumber the people against clean sport on the athletes level, on the government level, on the administrators level when it comes to VADA and governing bodies and the money where the money's coming from? Is there a critical mass? Because without that critical mass, it's it's a pipe dream. Yeah, we are we are we are working to build that coalition at Global Athlete. And as I say, we have you know fourteen independent ash, uh, athlete committees. So these are athlete committees that represent all Olympic sports in their country. Um, so we have fourteen nations represented where their athletes have said we WADA is failing and we need them to do better. Um, and then we have 14 national anti-doping agencies, and these are not necessarily the same countries where these national anti-doping agencies, USADA being one of them, are saying, you know, the global body that is tasked with the same mission that we are um, is, is failing, and we need them to do better. So we have, I don't know how many total countries were represented. Um, it was more than 14 because there's not 100% overlap, um, but, but we have... 
a growing chorus from people in the anti-doping movement and from athletes saying that this has to change and we're working to continue to build that coalition. So, so was the United States one of those in the, representing the coalition? Yes, both, uh, both the United States uh, Olympic and Paralympic Committee Athletes Council was one of the signatories and the United, US, USADA, US Anti-Doping Agency. So, so both, we were represented on both sides. So here's the question, is it it's cross-country skiers, we're like, well, of course we are. And we're clean as snow. I mean, we are famously naive when it comes to doping. And, and I love that. We're pure-hearted, you know, traditionally as a country when it comes to endurance sports, cross-country skiing, biathlon, et cetera. Track and field? We're one of the worst and have been for decades. So, like, even within, within the United States, when it comes to our sports and our coalition, I would hesitate to call us a clean nation because in track and field, we're not clean at all. We haven't been forever, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Like, do we have an identity crisis a little bit because we're super clean, but we're also among the worst, depending on the sport. And the, the worst doping scandals in this country have come from private organizations and private teams, be it the Nike Oregon Project, which is a private team, be it US Postal Service, which is a private team. Um, those are the worst doping perpetrators in this country. Um, over the last 20 years, and I believe in our in our public institutions. I believe in USADA. Um, I actually believe that uh, USA Track and Field and USA Swimming and U and US Ski and Snowboard and US, you know, all of the national federations. I think are are actually invested in clean sport, but we continue to have. There's so much money in some of these sports um, that we continue to have private organizations that uh, that are that are corrupting sport. And so that's why, you know, USADA has been effective um, eventually at cleaning up US athletes and needs to continue to be prioritized in terms of funding and in terms of resources. Um, and we can push, we can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can push to clean up US sport while also pushing to clean up international sport. For those that are, you know, it's, it's never good to criticize our, our, ourselves. Um, it's not popular, I should say. But for example, CJ Hunter, the shot putter, hit before his fourth positive test, which, which finally got him banned, the US track and field covered up, and this is uh, documented, three positive tests. And the same was done for other athletes. This is our, but, but I think this was pre-USADA, just, just right before USADA, I believe. Um, but if nothing else, I, I like what you're saying, and I, I totally agree with you. I'm just, so, you know, that whole critical mass thing is a very important point to bring up. I have a few other questions for you, unless you have a comment on what I just said. No, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, you mentioned um, the Olympics in Sochi. Obviously, that's a huge deal and uh, worst doping scandal probably in the history of sport, modern sport. Um, but, you know, just right around that same time afterwards, Russians were paying the International Biathlon Union the president was a Norwegian and the general secretary was a German. And the Russians were paying them, this is documented, this is fact, um, to look away from positive doping tests. And, and that's documented. Since then, the IBU has a look in the mirror. They fired the two of them. They got a coalition together and they, they clean slate and they start over. They have completely new people and they have checks in there. So that can't happen. But, you know, the Russians, they've been more creative than just drilling holes, which is incredibly creative, if you will, um, drilling holes in walls and, 
and putting needle-sized, uh, you know, hair si fractures in, in the wrappings and so on and switching out containers. They've been in bold base, just, just bribe everybody. And it's way out in the open, but no one can do anything about it because the people in charge are the ones getting the money. And, and that went on for four years. So, you know, this, there's a lot more to this than cloak and dagger stuff. There's just a lot of money being transferred right in front of everyone's face. And no one's doing anything about it because the people in charge, empowered without the checks and balances, are the ones who are covering it up. That's a tough one. I have another question, though. This is a whole other, and, and perhaps this is getting off of our subject directly because we're talking about policies that will positively affect anti-doping practices worldwide. But I do have a question for you because what is doping? Um, how do you feel, and I know you've done a lot of thinking about this, about therapeutic use exemption abuse as compared to traditional doping? You know, they're, they're not on the same level in terms of the profile they receive and the headlines. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I, you know, potentially the therapeutic use exemption, I mean, not potentially, the therapeutic use exemption um, policies in the WADA code um, need to continually evolve to combat abuse. Uh, but at least there are structures in place because I also believe that athletes who have asthma and have had asthma for their whole lives should not be prohibited from competing in international sport because they can't take their asthma medication. For sure. And so uh, therapeutic use exemptions are necessary. I mean, Chris Freeman would have not been able to ever compete in sport without therapeutic use exemptions because he would not have been able to take his insulin. He was his type one diabetic. He cannot survive without insulin and insulin is a banned substance. For sure. But it's performance. We also recognize that there are massive amounts of asthma medicine being taken by people who are self-admittedly not asthmatics. And the, and there are, without mentioning countries, there are doctors that represent federations who openly say that's true, but this is a prophylactic. It's, it's to avoid development of cold exercise-induced asthma, et cetera, et cetera. That is a slippery slope and questionable in my mind, but I'm curious what your opinion is regarding that. Yeah, I think that that's just beyond my area of expertise and even the area that I'm interested. I mean, like the nuance of the rules, the nuance of the science and of the medicine um, is is what, you know, is what we should have professionals and doctors focusing on and developing and we should have continually be evaluating and making it better. My my priority and my area of concern is to ensure that the rules that are written are um, are done so with athletes in mind and done so in the best interest of athletes and that the uh, and that athletes have power to be able to shape sport in the way that that prioritizes them and doesn't prioritize administrators and doesn't prioritize financial interests um, and to ensure that the independence and and I mean the the difference, like the scale, the difference in scale between um, abusing an asthma medication and, you know, institutional doping with EPO for thousands of athletes at, in, at the Olympics is 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 not the same conversation. And um, yeah. and I'm focused on the bigger problem. Um, and I'm and I and I I think that if we solve the bigger problems, um, then the resources can be devoted to the smaller problems. And, and again, we can walk and chew gum and we should be also yeah. combating TUE abuse. 
Um, but that's just like, that's not where like global athletes focus is. And I don't think it should be. I agree with everything you said. I'm just, it, it is a can of worms that I think a lot of people are uninterested or unwilling in opening because they're a little afraid of what they might find and it's not popular, but no, I it's true. It's true. It, it might also be a distraction though, against the, like, you know, in the same way, in the same way that we have seen distraction in this country, um, used as a tool to, you know, to, to hide corruption, you, you see, you know, it, it's like saying that, you know, um, it, it, you know, it's like, it, it gives the, like, for instance, the Russians, the ability to say, oh, look, everyone is doping because right. we're going to hack the USADA computer systems and show how many TUEs there are, even though TUEs are issued legitimately, right. um, whether they're being abused or not is like totally different than whether you're, you know, institutionally doping thousands of athletes with like every substance you could think of because you know they're not going to get caught and the TUEs are what you're saying is they're administered according to the rules and the process that have been, that have been agreed on you know Correct. It's court still even if you know and the, and the rules and, and, and there and there is absolutely abuse happening of those rules in that process and the rules in the process should be should be both you know maybe better crafted but also better patrolled um, but that, that's just a totally different scale of problem. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, obviously the big fish is the, the, the quote unquote, the hard, the hard stuff, you know, obviously. No, I've noticed you glancing at the clock a couple of times. Do you have another five minutes or? Um, you, you have yeah, let's, let's do five more minutes. That sounds fine. Okay, super. So uh, as you probably know, I've been the Topo glove designer from the start. You've skied on Topo gloves for many years. I'm always curious to hear which model is your favorite and why. Yeah. So I was always, I, I, just uh, collected the Profi gloves um, because I my my hands are always warm or, or almost always warm. I, I don't get cold very often, and I love the thinness and the and the flexibility of those gloves. So um, those were I raced in those, but I also often trained in those. They're thin. They've got a lot of mesh, a lot of ventilation. Um, they feel streamlined. They they make me think of racing. They make me think of like okay, it's go time when I'm putting on you know thin race gloves. So cool. Yeah, absolutely. What is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? <laughs> uh, kind of a cop-out answer, but I, you know, I, in the in the almost three years since I've retired, I've probably been cross-country skiing like three times, um, and I, uh, I I haven't roller skied since the day I retired. Um, so that's probably surprising. I, to be fair, I've been on skis a lot, but I, I've just shifted my focus to backcountry skiing. I've been um, really enjoying backcountry skiing. Um, and I haven't lived, because I've been in Providence at Brown, I haven't lived anywhere close to cross-country skiing. So it's not that I uh, have rejected the sport, but I just haven't had yeah. any opportunities. But that is still interesting. I'm sure you're running and biking and, you know, all the traditional staying active. Yeah, yeah. Health. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, lastly, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words. Uh, the big one during my career, I don't know how sold I, I don't know how well it's carried beyond my ski career, but I, um, we talked about having ownership over, over my career. Um, and, and part of that to me was like making informed decisions and really proactively making decisions. And the mantra that kind of went along with that was like, never, never make a decision by indecision. Um, so always like actively making a decision and taking ownership over that decision as opposed to just letting things happen to me. Oh, that is really empowering. That's a fantastic 
rule to set for yourself, you know? That's really great. Hmm. I, I've been fascinated watching you over the years. Obviously, we've gotten to know each other as well, but I've been fascinated watching you over the years your pure-hearted struggle towards the top. And, and you know, you've, you've fought and tried with every resource you possibly had, of which you have many. Um, you're very intelligent, you're talented, you're skilled, you're imaginative, um, you're super dedicated and driven. Um, you've been an example to me for someone to, to follow in thinking about me following my goals and how a person does it idealistically. And I, I'm pretty good at that. So that's a heck of a compliment, I think. Uh, you really uh, impressed me a lot. Uh, I've gotten to know, I've enjoyed getting to know you. And I wish you, I appreciate you taking so much time today for this interview. And uh, I really um, wish you the best. Thank, thank you, Ian. And thank you for my support, you know, for your support during my career. It, uh, it's because of, of uh, you know, people invested in the sport like you are that that I was able to, pursue my career and and that and that you know other athletes are as well so so thank you for your continued support um, even beyond my career gladly <laughs>